I appreciate uh, the opportunity to do it, and we're going to kind of uh, still talk about famous people in the Bible, um, although we're skipping ahead uh, quite a bit in the timeline, and we're going to talk about Jesus and the rich young ruler. Um, but let me, let me pray again just to get myself focused in here. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to uh, share your word. Uh, thank you for the chance to worship together uh, here in person. Um, God, it, it's great to be here, and it's great to be uh, among your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we study your word today that we can learn something um, and that we can take what we've learned and go and put into action in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Mark 10, verse 17, a man runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees, and he asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. It's an important question, although maybe, maybe he's looking for the wrong thing. Uh, maybe his focus isn't quite in the right place um, because he's worried about, Jesus, what can I do to live forever? Not, what can I do to be with you? Uh, right? But he's, he's looking in the right place for his answers. Okay? If you want to know how to inherit eternal life, there is no better source to go to than Jesus Christ himself. Nobody's more qualified to let this man know what needs to be done than Jesus. And obviously now, nearly 2,000 years down the road, we have those answers too as Christians. Okay? Those of us that have come to, to know Jesus... We've done it through uh, roughly the same process, getting to know him, and we can share that, hopefully, uh, with somebody else. But, I don't know about you, but it's not very often that someone comes to me asking that sort of question. Andy, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I, I, I don't think anyone has ever quite uh, put it like that to me. Um, but... People have questions. They're, they're looking for answers, and you can see it in the way that their lives play out. You can see it in the things that, that they pursue. And I think at the heart of a lot of those questions and a lot of those desires is the need for comfort and protection and security. And like they talked about, we're, we're dealing with so much anxiety right now because there is a lack of comfort and security because this world is just chaos. And People are looking for that, and they're looking in all sorts of places, and a lot of times they're the wrong places because they're not looking in Jesus. But I think that was at the heart of this man's question. He, he has, we will find out, he's got a pretty good life. He has things. Uh, he's probably well regarded in the community based on you know, his answers to uh, Jesus here, and, but he's searching for something. He wants something more. He wants eternal life. Deep within us, I believe because we are created in the image of God, is a desire to know and be known by him. For most of us, we, we have realized that desire. We have come to know him. We understand that he knows us, that he loves us. But for a lot of other people, millions upon millions, billions of people in this world. They seek that love and acceptance, uh, that sense of belonging, that sense of being known elsewhere because they don't know where to look. They're like this man, running desperate for answers. 
And when we come to know God, we understand what we were missing and what we were seeking. But until then, we may look to find it in human relationships, in our work, in our accomplishments, or any number of other things. But Jesus has this man before him, and he says in Mark 10, 18 through 20, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And you can almost see the light bulb going off. You can see the smile on his face. He's, ooh, I've done it. I've got it. Jesus gave me the answer I was looking for. I followed the commands. He's thinking, you, you want me to turn around so you can pat me on the back, Jesus? Because I've, I've done this. I've done really, really good. His eyes are lighting up. And he thinks, I've got my golden ticket because by the world standard, he's done what he needed to do. He's lived what the world would say is a good life. But one thing I noticed as I was preparing this is the commandments that Jesus mentioned is not a complete list. He only mentioned some of the Ten Commandments, and we obviously know that the law is far, far greater than just the Ten Commandments. There's a few missing. He mentions only the commandments that deal with our actions toward one another. Kind of setting this guy up a little bit, um, the way that I see it. You know, he talks about don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Those things that, that are all dealing with the people relationships and how to treat each other. And the guy did that pretty good. But he doesn't mention the commands that deal with that relationship to God. It doesn't deal with the commands of worship no other gods before me. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And I think that's very intentional on Jesus' part because he wants to point out the difference between the human relationship and our relationship with God. He's done well in treating others the way they should be treated, but what about his attitude toward God? Mark 10, 21 through 23, Jesus goes on, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. From this man's response, not even a verbal response, but just his actions, I think we can tell he's failed in his relationship with God. He has some other gods before the one true God. He loves his money. He loves his stuff. Jesus says, go and sell it. And you can just imagine the look on his face. He's it's not what I want to do. Jesus, don't you understand? Like, I've done everything else. 
He walks away. He's sad. Because he loved his things and he loved his riches on earth more than he loved God. And sometimes we find ourselves in the same place. Maybe not consciously. Maybe it just kind of creeps in a little bit over time. Maybe we're not directly deciding, I love this more than I love God. But it creeps its way into our actions in the way that we spend our time, in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we treat uh, people, the way that we treat God. We might see, if we step back and take an honest look at things, that we're placing more trust in the world rather than in God. And we might be in our own eyes and in the eyes of the world doing what is right and doing what is good, what is expected, but we might be doing it in a way that doesn't honor God, that does not truly show love to Him. So last week in Sunday school, uh, Larry was talking about Adam and Eve and how when Satan first tempted them, Eve's response included what God said, but also a little extra that apparently... Uh, she and Adam had added. She said regarding the tree in the center of the garden that they must not eat from it or even touch it. God never said that. And Larry said that this seemed to be a man-made rule that they came up with to keep from sin, a legalistic addition to God's command. Makes sense, right? Well, I can't eat from it if I don't even touch it. But... The thing that Larry pointed out was legalistic rules don't work because they don't touch the heart. They don't get to the point uh, of the matter. This man, this rich young ruler, rich young man, he followed the rules. He may have even done it better than anyone else. He had the riches he had from the world's perspective. He had everything. But he had a heart issue. His heart was not in the right place. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, uh, kind of leads us toward a way to how we can apply that. This says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and be strong. Paul admonishes the Corinthian church, do these things. And we might look at it and think, yes, you know, let's do this. It's, I, I was reading it and struck by it. It's, it's kind of a very... American way to look at things. We want to be strong. We want to be brave. We want to stand firm, right? But there's more to it than just that one verse. Those things are important, and what we do is important, but the way we handle Scripture is important too. We can't just pick and choose parts of it and follow them. Okay, this, this man followed most of the Ten Commandments well, but he struggled with the other parts, right? So you either, you agree with everything the Bible says, or you throw the whole thing out the window. It's all true, or it's all a bunch of baloney. And when we're quoting the Bible, we need to make sure that the things we are quoting aren't being pulled out of context, okay? We, we've got to get uh, the whole picture so that we are faithful to what the author really meant, Okay, John 3.16, we can pull that out and we can quote it, and it doesn't lose any of the meaning of the scriptures around it, in my opinion. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10.13, Romans 6.23, there's some other verses that fit that belt. On their own, 
they have the same message as what's around them. But there's other cases where when we leave out the context, it changes the meaning and it leaves us in uh, a dangerous position of maybe we might start to misuse the scriptures if we're not careful. Jeremiah 29.11 wasn't written to us. Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean that Jesus gives his followers the ability to do anything they set their mind to. John 10.10 doesn't mean we will have good health and prosperity on this earth. Those things might happen, but those verses are not a promise. And and 1 Corinthians 16.13 is really good, and we need to do those things, but we cannot split it up, in my opinion, from verse 14, which says, do everything in love. We have to do those things but we have to do it in love. We can't do it any other way or we're not doing it the right way. We need to stand firm on what we believe. We need to be strong. We need to be courageous, but we need to do it with love. What we do matters, but so does how and why we do it. The young man Jesus was talking to, he kept the commands But he might have loved himself and his stuff more than he loved God. And when you completely change the motivation, when you change the order of importance there, you ruin the whole equation. You get the whole thing wrong because God has to be first. It's the only place he fits is when he's first. He loved his riches more than he loved God. And can you imagine, you've run to Jesus... You fall down on your knees at his feet and you ask him this question and he gives you the answer. You've come to him because you know this is where I'm going to find the answer. And then he tells you and you just, that's not what I wanted to hear. And he walks away sad. He knew where to find the answer and didn't like the answer he got so he walked away. Jesus was telling this man, get rid of the thing that is keeping you from loving God fully. And this man wasn't willing to do it. He wouldn't do it. So maybe the reason he kept the commandments wasn't because he loved God. Maybe it wasn't because he loved others, but because he wanted to check the right boxes and be seen a certain way. And I don't want to fall into that trap. I don't want us as a church to fall into that trap. It's easy to do certain things because they're what's right. You know, we can, we can toss a few dollars in the offering because it's expected. It's what's right. But I think there's more to it than that, if, that what God wants from us. We can, we can teach a Sunday school class or, or we can serve uh, in all kinds of different ways, but if our heart is doing it so that, that we will be seen or, or so that people will think a certain way about us, I don't think that that's what God has in mind. What we do matters, but so does how and why we do it. God wants us to act obediently, but he wants us to act obediently out of our love for him. He wants us to love because he first loved us. He wants love to drive everything that we do. And love for him, not love for ourselves. 
So how do, how do we do that? How is that practically applied in our lives? Well, to me, the, the best place to start and to think about that is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus answers the question of what is the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is talking to Jewish people here. This is a Jewish crowd that, that he's around. This man has kept the commandments. He's a Jewish uh, person, so he would have been one that knew it, just like the people he's talking to in Matthew 22. And so this is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. They would have been intimately familiar with these verses because they would quote it, uh, they would repeat it twice a day. If you were a faithful uh, Jewish follower of Jesus, of, of God, sorry, uh, you repeated that twice a day. And, and it carried with it this idea of total and complete submission to God and all of his commandments. No questions asked, total and complete submission to God. It, it's not about, you know, loving God with specific parts of your body, but it's everything that we have, everything that we do should love God. And out of that love comes obedience to what he taught us. Out of that love comes love for each other. Because Jesus says the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the implication of Jesus saying that is we have a responsibility to seek the greatest good of our neighbors. And we know that the man in, in that patch says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus essentially answers, everybody's your neighbor. Anyone and everyone that you come across is your neighbor. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 15 and commands them, love one another as I have loved you. He says, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. So if showing love to others is a way that we can show our love for Jesus, that we can be obedient to God, Maybe that means I set aside what I want. I set aside what I think is important so that I can really love others. Maybe I have to get out of my comfort zone. I have to open up my home, host a small group, be a foster parent, you know, let, let my neighbors come and share with me, uh, welcome in family members that I disagree with, what, whatever it is. Set aside my own comfort for the sake of others. Maybe I need to do something I don't like. Go shopping with my wife. I hate shopping. It bores me to death. I want to get in, get what I'm looking for, get out. Sometimes Whitney likes to browse. She likes to look at things. I don't get it. Especially if it's stuff that we're never going to buy. But because I love her and I want to seek you know, her good as well as my own, I'll do it. I'll be there. I'll be with her. I'll, I'll check it out. And conversely, she knows that I love watching sports. She doesn't. Bores her to tears. But... We'll buy tickets to games and stuff, and we'll go, and she'll sit there right beside me because she knows that's something I love. Setting aside what we want 
for the benefit of someone else can show love. Maybe I need to step out of my comfort zone and share Jesus with someone because it's what they need. Even if I'd rather not talk to that person. Even if it might be awkward. Even if they might say no. When I became a Christian at nearly 16 years old, it was, it was a process that had started almost two years before. I, I've shared this before. My friend's dad saw me, and he saw someone who needed to know the love of Christ, someone who didn't have it. And he went above and beyond to show me that he loved me because Jesus loved me. He would come home from a job that, you know, he, he had a stressful job. He was an executive uh, at a bank and dealing with a whole lot of different issues all the time, and he'd be exhausted. I, he had to be. I come home exhausted from really easy jobs, okay? I have the greatest job in the world. It's easy as can be, and I come home exhausted, okay? His job was stressful, but every Thursday night for many years, about 6.30, a whole host of teenagers would show up to his house, and he'd lead a Bible study for us because we needed to know Jesus better than we did. They'd, they'd cook fields. He, he'd pick me up every Sunday for church, buy me lunch. He prayed for me. He, he led me to Jesus by showing me Jesus. And it took a long time for me to get it. And I'm sure there were nights when he just had to, is he ever going to understand? Anybody who's had a teenager can probably relate. Are, are they ever going to get it? I was hard-headed as they come. He loved me despite the financial and emotional cost, uh, despite all the time that it took. You know, in, in eight-plus years of full-time ministry, there's been no shortage of students uh, adding these gray hairs to my head and stressing me out. But I love it. I, I, again, I have the greatest job in the world because I know that doing what I do, or I pray, I hope, that doing what I do shows them the love of Jesus like someone showed me the love of Jesus when I was a teenager. I know that they need to know what I know. I know they need to have what I have. It's going to stress me out. There's going to be late nights. There's going to be questions that, you know, leave me scratching my head. But if it makes a difference for them knowing and choosing to follow Jesus for the rest of their life, it means everything. I'll have kids in my house all hours of the night if that's what it takes. I'll answer every phone call, go to every uh, game and stuff that I can if that means that they'll get to know Jesus. And how many of us would do the exact same thing for our own children too? We will deal with all the headaches. We will put up with anything and everything that we can. And in the hopes of showing them the love of Jesus so that they have what we have. A lot of times it's sacrificial to really love somebody. It's going to take more out of you than you get in return, but as Christ followers, we shouldn't be seeking to fill our lives with love from others, but instead we fill ourselves with the love of Christ. We go back to the Word. We remind ourselves uh, of who He is. We worship together on Sunday mornings uh, to be filled 
with the Spirit, to be filled with His love, to be filled with the reminders of who He is and what He has done. And then we go and we pour out to everyone that we can. His word should be a daily reminder to us of His love and His plan for us to be with Him forever, like that young man was seeking. But that love can get twisted sometimes in the world that we live in. They'll tell us, that, well, if you love me, you'll just let me do what I want to do. If you love me, you won't try to make me change. If you love me, you'll whatever. But again, as a parent, I know that's not the case. I love my kids, so I'm not going to let them run helter-skelter around the pool. I'm going to make sure they're careful because they could fall, hurt their head, fall in the pool, any number of things, right? I love my kids, so even though they want to eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm not going to let them do it because that's not going to make them healthy. That's not going to help them grow the way that they need to. I love them, so sometimes I have to correct them. I have to push them in the right direction, even if that means I get to hear, this is the worst day ever. You'd be surprised how many worst day ever has happened in our home. <laughs> the world says, no, love is love, and it demands that we Christians never try to tell anyone for believing what they believe. But the Bible says God is love. The Bible says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And those who don't know him will spend eternity in absolute torment. And because that's true, I say the most loving thing you could possibly do is to tell them the truth about who Jesus is and how to come into that saving relationship with him. That means that we're going to have to confront and deal with sin in an appropriate manner. Confession, repentance, baptism. Living a life of faithfulness. And sometimes we get really passionate about doing this. We really want to make sure that people aren't stuck in their sin. But maybe sometimes we forget that we still have to do that in love. We have to do that in a way that shows people love too. We can't just beat somebody over the head with the truth and hope it sinks in. We have to show it to them in a way that they can receive it. We focus maybe a bit too much on sin and what's wrong with it and how you know, they need to change and, and maybe that distracts people from getting to know him in the first part. Now, I, I'm not saying we don't call sin what it is, but there's a difference between telling someone the way they're living is going to send them to hell and eternal torment and telling them, hey, here's the alternative. You can have eternal life if you follow Jesus. Maybe we shouldn't focus on the sin so much, and we should focus on the alternative. Just show them what's good, and Jesus is good enough to make them say, I don't even want this anymore. I want this. Jesus will take care of getting rid of the sin in our lives. I don't know about you, but it's not a person that convinced me to stop living sinfully. It's Jesus that convinced me, here's how I need to live. Not that I've completely stopped. You know what I mean, right? Our job is to point people to the truth of the Bible and let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. He'll take care of it. 
We explain what the truth is and how it changes our lives, and then the Holy Spirit will come in and go to work. That's what he did to me. Jesus didn't tell this rich young man, he didn't look at him and say, you miserable sinner. you got to fix it. Get this right. You love your stuff more than you love God. He didn't condemn him. He didn't look down on him. He didn't tell all the bad things he's done. He just said, he looked at him in love. He told him, here's what you need to do. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, here's what you're missing. In uh, Ephesians 4.15, Paul says we need to speak the truth in love. And my ESV study Bible uh, has a really great note on this verse. It says, the truth must not be used as a club to bludgeon people into acceptance and obedience, but must always be presented in love. If Jesus had looked at the man kneeling at his feet and, and proclaimed him a no-good sinner, is there any chance that that man would get up and say, you know what, you're right. I don't think so. I don't think people have changed that much over the last 2,000 years. Everybody probably would react about the same to that. Now, this man didn't appear to repent. It doesn't seem like he ever accepted the messages that Jesus shared. And that's a chance that we take, sharing the gospel with somebody. Sometimes they say no. Sometimes they decide, that's not for me. But I have to believe that the chances were better for this man to say yes, because Jesus was gentle and he was honest. It was out of love that Jesus called this man to repentance, but he refused. And I'm sure that broke Jesus' heart. But it didn't stop him. And I'm sure Jesus knew what the answer was going to be. But that didn't stop him. So what can we learn from this interaction between Jesus and the rich young man? First, I think we can see we've got to check our motivation. Why am I doing the things that I do? Is it so that I can look good? Is it so that people will see me a certain way? Or is it because I love God? Is my love for God and others driving the choices I'm making, or is it my own comfort and happiness that is the main factor? The second is we have to speak the truth in love. Again, we can't leave that part out. As Christians, they should know us, they being non-Christians, should know us by our love in all that we do. We want other people to see the love of Jesus and be drawn to that. And not try and shame somebody out of their sin. We don't want to bludgeon people with the truth, but gently and lovingly teach them what it is and let the Holy Spirit change their hearts. It's not just about what we do, but how and why we do it. And finally, I think we need to understand that sometimes our best efforts won't get the results that we want. The outcome isn't what we want, but we have to try anyway. We have to share what these people need. Because if we don't, we don't know that somebody else will. This man had everything laid out for him. He knew exactly what he needed to do, told to him by the Son of God, right here, face to face. And he chose to walk away. 
The Bible tells us that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We live in a fallen and sinful world, and people will always disappoint us. Because Bill pointed out last week, that's what sin does. It disappoints. It never gives you what it promises. But every time that someone joins us by walking through that small gate onto the narrow road, the angels rejoice. And we rejoice. Jude says it's like we are snatching someone out of the fire. And until Jesus comes back, there's time for more people to make that decision. And we are the ones to show them love and help them come to that point. Maybe, maybe God is, is speaking to us and, and asking us to, to check our motivation and how we do things. What's more important to me? I, I know I ask myself that question a lot when, when writing this sermon over the past few weeks. Maybe God is telling you, take that step, walk through the narrow gate, come and join me in eternal life. Maybe God is moving you to share the truth in love with someone who needs to hear it. Whatever it is, let's take action because God's love should never leave us content to coast through life without doing what needs to be done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for calling us to repentance. We thank you for offering us the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the many things that we can learn from his teaching. Help us to be motivated by our love for you, to be obedient to what you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.